right, so we want to welcome Halbert Katzen back to the Urantia Radio Podcast. Halbert, I think this is your fifth appearance, so many of the listeners who have not heard Halbert before, go back and listen to some of the early archives. We have them posted, I think, on UrantiaRadio.net, but also on the uh, the Spotify podcast. But Halbert is the uh, he is the executive producer, and uh, I don't know how, what, what's the appropriate way you created you be the news, which is which is a website and a, a scholarly approach to the Arantia revelation. In that, you are doing all a lot of research, and what we're going to talk about today is the Shroud of Turin and some recent discoveries that you've mentioned, because I get your emails all the time. But before we jump into that real heavy topic, can you can we go back and, and maybe you could share <clears throat> with us, uh, just for a minute or two, your humble beginnings and how you discovered the Urantia book and what the Urantia book means to you, Halbert? Uh, sure, Jim, and thanks for having me on your show. Again, I really appreciate the opportunities to uh, talk about my work, which is uh, you've already uh, mentioned, essentially is about Urantia book scholarship. I, I started a project called You Be the News about uh, 15 years ago that focused on how uh, new discoveries and scientific advances increasingly have been supporting Urantia book history. And that evolved into a broader um, creation of study aids and uh, collecting, you know, uh, study aids from other people and presenting them as a resource on a website. I mean, it's it just a, a, a project that I work with other people on as much as I can, but it's just one person's effort, you know. Well, I know all about that. Organized, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're also, if you don't mind me mentioning to people, you're a you're a lawyer by training. In other words, you you've uh, you understand law, and you're uh, you're very specific. Your research is 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 great. Your writings, your presentations, are all very well thought out and orderly. Um, So again, uh, your discovery of the Urantia book. How did you find it, and what what does the book mean to you? Any any particularly interesting story about how you discovered the Arantia book? Where were you in your life? Just kind of curious. Well, I was um, taking a year off between high school and college and working with Greenpeace, going door-to-door on membership drives in California. And someone in the Greenpeace canvas introduced me to the book. And I took to it very quickly. Um, it... Uh, you know, I don't have anything too special to report there in the sense that it was overwhelmingly uh, influential right from the beginning because of the quality of the writing and what it said. You yeah. know, it resonated. <laughs> it yeah, right. Simple. I, I, I yeah. can imagine knowing you, uh, and I don't know you that well, but just based on what my impressions are, I kind of get the feeling that you probably said the book and, and you probably went, oh, that's it. That's That's it. Like there was a there was a sense of uh, discovery, but it wasn't. I don't think it overwhelmed you as much as it was like, okay, now I can now I can rest. I, I found what I think I've been looking for. Am, am I pretty close? Well, it wasn't like now I can rest because there was a two part process that you're alluding to that really did need teased out, and I thank you for doing so. Which is that. Um, I was agnostic when I found the Urantia book. Mm, that's an so important point. I, I, I had to be born in the spirit. Ah. I had to make a choice. Uh, okay, so before 
I could believe the Urantia book was the revelation it claimed to be, I had to do the soul searching to determine that I wanted to choose faith, whether or not the Urantia book is what it claims to be. Because I understood the question on that level. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, my faith should be independent of what the Urantia book says, just in the sense that I recognized on a human level, people have been having faith in God for a long time without a Urantia book. Yeah. So why, you know, why should I be dependent on that? And other people <laughs> are. It just didn't, you know, it just didn't add up. It just didn't make sense. So um, I, I, you know, made the personal choice and, and then uh, immediately, uh, you know, chose to believe uh, the Urantia book was what it claimed to be. Um, but with the understanding that if for whatever reason, the choice about the book changed, the choice about faith is not going to change. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, that's a good I point. I had those yeah. thoughts in my head at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you and, and I have that, that in common because I found the book around 19, 20 years old. I wasn't particularly looking for it. I was fairly settled in my my pre-existent belief system, whatever that was. But when you read it, uh, there was something about the way that it's formulated, the way that it's written. There's there's a there's a reek of authority that just comes right off the pages. That's what what I remember the most. Yeah. yeah so. Uh, but go on. If there was any follow-up, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Well, no, no, that that was that was sort of uh, what I had to say about that. I mean, I could go on with personal stories, but that really is the beginning. Yeah, uh, the the beginning and, and where things kind of took a turn and a shift. And then I I think probably the next thing to mention is I got a little preparation for the science-religion connection in terms of preparation for the You'd Be the News Project and doing your Rancho Book Scholarship, because it was a couple years before that got going, around 2004, that um, what I call the Halbert Sickles started growing, which yeah. is this... Um, Sorry for the uh, obnoxious driver outside. Oh, that's that okay. It's called life. We welcome the sounds yeah, of yeah. life on, on this show. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I have this peculiar phenomenon that occurs where uh, my ice cubes grow spikes at the top in quite spectacular fashion on a very regular basis for almost 20 years now. And it was... Uh, in response to a prayer request of a family matter, and it gave me a few years developing skills, uh, art of conversation skills, and thought process skills related to this type of topic of science and religion. Um, Obviously, the Shroud of Turin is right at the intersection of science and religion. And um, it's a hot topic because of that. You know, it, it really brings things together from different lanes, from different focuses, and asks us to uh, deal with the wholeness of life this way. And so it's a topic that um, gets us into relationships and community very powerfully. Uh, 
to take up this shroud of Turin subject because it's um, it creates ethnic cultural identification and relates to belief systems that you know have an enormous influence on the world and have so for the last two thousand years, and then that leads to the tendencies that go along with relationships that are, are good and bad, you know, um, where uh, people can get quite contentious over the topic because um, it, it has to do with issues that people feel passionate about. We have to kind of get specific on a lot of what you're saying because in generalities what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is like the Arantia book, the, the Shroud of Turin, forces, well, it, like you say, the intersection of science and faith. Uh, the science is, of course, the way that we've analyzed the shroud. It's, it's, it's allegedly the, uh, the, the cloth that Jesus' body was wrapped into after he was crucified, put into St. Joseph's tomb. Uh, the, uh, the biblical account having to do with, you know, uh, getting pierced, on the right side, although I, I do want to ask you a question a little bit later on about that. Uh, this latest information from you on the Shroud of Turin seems to corroborate more of what the Arantia book has to say, and it says it in a very subtle way. Isn't it interesting, Halbert, in the Arantia book, it doesn't make a big deal about the cloth, but it does because it tells the story of the cloth. He was wrapped in it. There was a process of dissolution that occurred, which you described very well in your research. I'm, I'm just giving a thumbnail so we can get to the juicy part. But the, the, the biblical account does not tell us what happened to the cloth. The Urantia account tells us very clearly what happened to the cloth, that it was dumped over a cliff, which could be found by anyone. <clears throat> it well, didn't issue, get destroyed. I may say, is uh, not so much um, the cloth, what the cloth represents. Yes. And this gets right back to Zechariah. And and so it's very nice that you... Tell us who Zechariah is. ...this issue up at at this point in the conversation, because one of the... um, Let me draw an analogy this way. Um, So what's the difference between a materialist, and a scientist. The difference is that the scientist, who's a true scientist, knows how to stay in their lane. They know the difference between material science, spirituality, and the philosophic realm that coordinates those two things. The materialist has already determined that there's just one lane. (laughs) <laughs> and that's the basic difference between the materialist and the scientist. And, and in um, practical application today, one of the ways we see this come out uh, very powerfully in genetics is we have uh, a junk DNA, right? What a materialistic attitude towards something so complex. Say junk, junk DNA? DNA <laughs> Yeah, junk DNA. In other words, do you think 
that someone who believed in God or was open to the idea of intelligent design regarding the evolutionary process coined the word junk DNA? Was that a theistic point of view? Probably not. No, it's and a materialistic point I of view. To get to. Right, right. And yeah. so when it comes to the Shroud of Turin, because science now studies it in a scientific way, it brings out materialistic tendencies that must be identified and acknowledged for what they are so that scientists don't end up dominating the nature of the conversation with their predeterminative mindset regarding whether there's God or not. How are they doing that with the Shroud of Turin? What, what, what are they doing? They're just looking at it from a, oh, this could be uh, not attaching any divinity or spirituality to it, but just more of a practical, yeah, this could be the cloth of that guy that they call the prophet. Yeah, it could be, but it doesn't mean well, anything. Okay, well, I want to go back now before we jump ahead. I, okay. I, I put some notes together on this, and you identified what I did right away, which is I stopped talking about the Shraditorin as soon as I started talking about it pretty much. I went into science and religion, relationships and community, relationship tendencies. And I was going to say more things, and will say more things, that don't have to do with the Shrouded Turin. And the reason it's important to do this is because when people's passions about science and religion come to bear on a topic, and then they argue about it, we have to have some medical discussion. We need to identify and tease out from the beginning how the ego and opinion and bad reasoning mucks up a good topic and what could be a great conversation. And this is where my legal background is very useful to this. What we have in law when it comes to reasonableness is not just existential standards like what I mentioned with the scientist versus the materialist where we just need to sort of philosophically, you know, stand back and recognize what science can do and what it can't do. You know, that it's involved with material things, not non-material things, and whether or not there's non-material things is a choice a free will choice and there's no science going to prove it either way. Now that's the existential side of it. The experiential side of it looks like, well, it's something even worth talking about or are we just going to throw it out of court right away? Cause this lawsuit is frivolous. It is just a waste of everybody's time. Well, the shroudatorium isn't, raising those types of issues. What's next up the ladder for the threshold of reasonableness? More likely than not, this is what we get in this civil trial. And then above more likely than not, we have in criminal justice beyond reasonable doubt. Now what happens in a conversation about the Shroud of 
turn and, and things like it where passions get inflamed and egos get involved and people argue points and all of this kind of stuff is that the whole conversation becomes very unfair and misdirected. Why? Because when critics show up, they typically will unfairly demand and project a beyond reasonable doubt standard for things. Because it makes it easier for them to make their points and be right and win an argument. It doesn't really help a conversation. It doesn't develop insight and perspective. And it becomes a, a way to uh, also get judgmental and rather you know, unpleasant in a conversation. What happens in real life is that we're called upon all the time to make decisions based on the more likely than not standard, which another way of saying that is like 51% is good enough to make the decision when you have to make a decision. But the problem is once someone makes a decision on a 51%, you know, 49 type standard, a more likely than not standard, now the ego is involved in that choice. And Often life doesn't allow for a 51% commitment to the choice that was made. you got to commit 100%. Hey, um, you know, I need to either move to uh, San Francisco or New York City. Boy, it's a tough choice. Can I do like half in each, you know, no. Like that, this is life. And so... With the Shroud of Churn, I think it's very important to just remember that it excites all of these types of issues because we're inclined to want to have a belief and opinion about it, and we're inclined to identify uh, the opinions that people have about it who we see within our community as then influencing how our community is perceived incredibly. <laughs> in the Urantia community, where people assert belief about an ethical revelation written by a host of angels, you know, in the last hundred years, that basically no one believes in on a percentage basis or knows about in this world. People who are concerned will look like a bunch of relic worshipping um you know, people who are, are stupid in our sensibilities because someone in the Urantia community thinks the shroud of turn is real. <laughs> you know, so are you telling me that in conversations, Hal, Halbert, let me talk because uh, I'll let you talk there for like yeah. five minutes. So let me ask a question because mm -hmm. I want to get some direction and we got to get to where we're going. Are you telling me that people that you've talked to in the Urantia community are, 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 are worried that they're going to be viewed as, hate to say the word, Christian, because they believe the Shroud of Turin is the cloth that was wrapped in the sepulcher of Jesus? Worse than Christian. Really? Really? Huh. Yeah, in other words, like the most backwards of Christians. And when I wrote the Shroud of Turin report for the UB The News Project over 10 years ago, 
I got backlash. Really? I wasn't expecting it. Yes. Huh. See, I never would have thought. I never would have thought that. I look at it as purely a... I mean, I already believe that Christ is who he is and the divinity. I don't need the shroud to confirm or deny that conviction. Uh, so to me, it's strange that other people would be... Catholic background? Not at all. That's what it has to do with, Jim. Oh, I see. Almost universally. Not completely universally, but, you know, you get what I'm saying. It's primarily people from the Catholic background. What's the point of contention on that? Do you know? It excites their personal growing up experiences with the Catholic Church. Mm. And, you know... See, I'm completely oblivious. Is the Catholic Church related to it? And and if you leave it, you know, you're on the outside. It's a very inside outside kind of thing and very. What's the position? What is the Catholic Church position on the Shroud of Turin? Oh, I can speak for the Catholic Church exactly. They've said things about it that are generally good, I think. Okay, so they believe in the Shroud of Turin as being. Yeah, okay. Does, yeah, I, I did not know that. Speaking, so. What's that? Yeah. Generally speaking, that, that's my sense of it. But hmm. again, okay. like, well, let's know, get all. Let's get. Can we? Is not what I've been focused on. Yeah. That's all all right. Saying. Let's. I want to leave I, all of that at the on door. A lot of issues here. Hold on, <laughs> Albert. Let, let's do this. I don't care what Catholics think. I don't care what what your Rancho book readers think. I only care about what my audience thinks, and my audience, I think, is with me on this. We all know what the Arantia book says about the cloth, and we, we spend a lot of time really in conversations that I've had with people marveling at the, for example, the dissolution process, the story that you sent me when you were putting your, um, I don't want to say thesis together. It's exciting to me that you saw the picture that I sent you that they took. They they took the shroud and they made a computer-generated picture based on the cloth. And what popped out is this incredible picture of the face of Christ. And to me, it's the best depiction I've ever seen. But as a Urantia book reader, that excites me. And I don't, I don't bring in my luggage or my 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 past Christianity when I when I look at the story. To me, it's very exciting. It, I think it's very exciting for Urantia book readers. So for those who are listening to this podcast. Halbert is right. There are still people who are too worried in the Arantia community about being called out. It's like they're gay and they don't want to be called out of the closet. They don't want to be outed for believing in such a strange and unorthodox religious tome. That has to stop. We have to stop worrying about what people are going to perceive about our views about this glorious revelation. So is it possible that we could leave all of that at the door and just talk about your recent discoveries about the Shroud of Turin? Let's assume for the sake of argument that our audience is in simpatico with you and I. We know what we're looking at, and we love it. So tell us, if you could, what is the new material that is exciting for you about the Shroud of Turin? Um, well... I can't quite do it that way. And here's why. Um, I can speak to your audience 
that's not a problem. I understood what she said and don't have a problem speaking within that context and framework of listeners who have a perspective in a belief system. It's great. It makes it a lot easier for sure. Yeah, you're among friends is what right. I'm saying. So Right, right. I get all that. But um, nonetheless, my work has always been identified by me, you know, the project, the nature of the project, as being at the intersection of scholarship and outreach. Yeah. And so when I talk about how other people hear this, and I brought it up within the context of the Urantia community, because that's where our conversation kind of starts and we're familiar with it a bit more and it helps us focus. Yeah. It's very important to remember that this conversation lives beyond us. And one of the incredible things about it is that it's an extraordinary outreach conversation. And to use the outreach conversation effectively, you can't just have some facts. you got to have some psychological understanding of what's out there, or you're just going to take the facts and beat someone over the head with it unconsciously. Well, that's true. Right, right. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, people yeah. don't even realize that that's what they're doing. And, that's and, true. And they don't realize it because, for instance, like as you just brought up, not all of us were raised Catholic. Right. Somewhere, so, somewhere. If you're talking to a Catholic person, there's a much higher percentage that it, the conversation is going to make a difference in certain ways to them. Well, I'll throw and, out and another to one. be savvy about that yeah. is, you know. Well, that's true. But you know what? There's a lot in the Arantia book that would offend most Jews. But do I care? You know, we got to stop, like you said, we've got to stop being offended and acting like spoiled children that want life to be just the way we want it. That's why the Urantia book on the subject of race, I mean, I've had a lot of time to think about all this. You know, we still don't have a clear understanding about why there are different colored races. In fact, you would have scientists today asserting that there are no colored races. We're all essentially the same except for the melatonin in our skin. Oh, never mind the skeletal structure of the East Malaysian compared to the Ukrainian. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost as if you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I agree with you in principle. People have got to stop evaluating truth based on their own perceptions of what they think truth is. And that's what people do. Here is, is, it's not that I'm, uh, uh, it isn't about that I'm offended. You know, it's not about people aren't nice to me. Though I care about this. It's not like inconsequential or insignificant or anything. But the mission is service. It's a ministry service mission. People are like that because they need a certain type of ministry that they haven't been getting. That's exactly One right. One of those types <clears throat> of ministry, literally, is to just be slowed down and reminded, hey, this isn't a trial. Yeah. It's the Shroud of Turin. People have opinions about it. No one's going to jail. Most people don't it. care about it. I, I don't think most people. Right, most right, people right. who are secular don't care about the Shroud of Turin. They'll, they'll say, ah, it's just you religious people trying to, you know, prove that Jesus really lived, yada, yada, yada. You know what? But those people. But if you're talking to a Catholic person and they become excited about it and you want to chill out that overly passionate excitement. Why? Then you can remind them. With all due respect, my friend, 
We're just talking opinions here. Yeah. What's more likely than not? I don't have to prove anything to you beyond all reasonable doubt. And you, my friend, don't need to prove anything to me beyond all reasonable doubt. So if we're going to talk about it, let's enjoy talking about it at the much lower level of uh, reasonableness called more likely than not versus beyond all reasonable doubt. Okay. Can we just talk? Yeah. In those terms. All and right. you'll find that, you know, this helps. I agree. I'm totally in agreement. I, that's why I brought you. That's why I wanted to talk to you, because I love the Shroud of Turin. It's been a fascinating thing for me for decades. It has nothing to do with the Arantia book, you know, because to me, again, I've already, it's uh, ipso facto, you know, a priori assumption that Christ is, is valid to me. So the Shroud, you know, Christ was very particular about not leaving things behind, because he did not want the fetish impulse to kick in. And apparently the one thing that he had no control over, which was the the cloth that he was wrapped in, he couldn't necessarily destroy that piece of evidence. Uh, and here we are 2,000 years later. What is the new discovery or what are the new discoveries that you have found wait, about wait, the Shroud wait, 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 wait. that you would like wait, to share? Wait, wait, wait. Slow, slow down there, because you just alluded to reasons, really important reasons, why Urantia book readers become highly positional on the issue in a way that terribly misrepresents the text. So, it says in the Urantia book that Jesus had it in mind to not leave any relics behind, destroy all the writing. There was a principle articulated. It was very clear. Hey, you know what? There was a principle articulated about not doing miracles. There was a principle articulated about using family, building kingdoms. Yeah. Things change. The Urantia book demonstrates a highly adapted Jesus. And yet, Urantia book readers will show up with this dichotomous proof beyond all reasonable doubt mindset of logic. Look, it says right here, that's the proof beyond all reasonable doubt. And that's what your ranch book readers do to want to discount the shroud. Oh, okay. And it's well, important to be able to pick apart the sophistries. You need to start talking to different Urantia books. As a minister, <laughs> I mean, this is ministry within our group. I see what happened here is that people are are barking at you about your most recent uh, addition to you be the news, and uh, and I'm just here to tell you I don't that's not been my experience. I've done over 200 podcasts for the Urantia Book Radio, Halbert, and I've never once and I leave my email address at the end of every episode. I've never once ever received a contentious email from a Urantia Book reader who has scoffed. At my efforts, never once. So you, I want you to know that you're in the best company in the world. And they, we love you. And we love what you do with You Be The News. And I've talked about you with people that I've had on this program. And we respect what you're doing as far as that intersection between scholarly, you know, a- academia and faith. We get it. We, we love it. We love it. We eat it up. We slurp it up like a Slurpee. At Dunkin' Donuts. So please. And you're going to lo- love what I did. 
I didn't discover something new exactly about the shroud, except new thoughts, yes. new questions. That's what I discovered was that certain questions had not been asked by anybody regarding study of the Shroud of Turin, and that if you asked that question and came up with a different answer than what everybody else had, then you immediately had a a confirmation validation of the Urantia book saying that the Pierce was on the left-hand side. This is what is at the heart of our discussion today, is the side of the that Jesus was pierced on. There has been universal uh, modern day, and I want to stress this, universal modern day belief that the image on the shroud was formed on the side of the cloth that was closest to Jesus' body and therefore created a mirror image. An alternative theory is that that image was produced on the outside of the cloth, giving us a true image, not a reverse mirror image. Now, that thought in modern times with scientific study of the shroud was never, ever considered. And I was able to actually verify this in a two-hour conversation with Barry Schwartz earlier this week, who was the photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project Mm. back in 1978 when they took a couple dozen scientists over there and, and did all that work. He's the one who took the pictures. So let me before you go on. Let me. I got a couple of questions I want to ask. So the the today's scientists or people that look at the shroud, they they don't have the added information supplied by the Arantia book uh, authors about the dissolution process that was requested at the time of the resurrection. And there might be people who are familiar with the Arantia book, but not this particular story. So in the thumbnail view, what happened after that period? 3.15 a.m., you know, the night after he's been put in the tomb, uh, the the standing, I guess it was an archangel or someone had come to Gabriel and said, this is all stuff, you know, humans can't see. This is behind the scenes. They came to him and said, we don't want to watch Jesus's body, you know, slowly disintegrate over time. Can you spare us this and allow us to take the body and we'll just speed up the process of normal dissolution will accelerate time. And this is what led to what you and I would probably, that energy release burned an image, which you're talking about. That would explain the image being burned on the cloth. And so I'll, is, is that correct? Well, one of the things, um, interestingly enough, that this last week of study brought up for a new level of consideration and question that I had never thought about and asked before. And interestingly enough, it came from one of these people in the community who was giving me a hard time. And, you know, send him my way. (laughs) But, 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 but he raised an important issue. I've never thought about. And that is 
like the Urantia book talks about how the bandages were left intact on the burial niche and that the face napkin and the shroud were folded at opposite ends of the burial niche. This implies, and we were told that Jesus was taken outside the tomb in order for the instantaneous or near instantaneous material disillusion to occur. So I tended to think up until this week, now it's a question, that the image was created when Jesus was outside of the tomb having the body dematerialized. Was the wrapping still but around him at that point? So they would Apparently would've... not. Interesting. It certainly stands to reason that his body was removed from the wrappings in the burial niche before he was taken out of the tomb. We don't actually know. But what we do know is that midwayers know how to manipulate energy so that you can be invisible or not yeah. and have a more or less direct relationship to the material energy circuit. So the way the bandages are left suggests that one process was used to um, dematerialize Jesus to get oh, I him see. out of the bandages and then another time acceleration process was used to get rid of the body altogether. I, I can I can buy that. It, uh, I think that makes sense. And right, and so either one of those processes could have created the image on the shroud. We don't know. Yeah. And I also think that your your positioning on the left or the right, where the wound, where the remnants of the wound is still visible. On the shroud, I think I think that's that's very important. I almost kind of chuckled. I thought, well, maybe they just accidentally flipped it over, <laughs> and you know, th- that's well, the end of the story. Is it? Is it? Could it be that simple? Maybe. And where does it say in the Bible that it was on the right side? Because that could be misinterpreted. The right side of it doesn't. Say it doesn't. That. How did how did that assumption come into uh, acceptance? Why do we assume that Jesus was stabbed on the right side? Okay, so I'm not going to answer that question just yet. Okay. Because it jumps ahead too much. All right. Right? And, and, and we, we lost track of the thread that I raised earlier that is essential to your audience. And that is the theistic perspective. So you may not have seen this yet, but I've made some additions to the page uh, that I first created on this issue when I put out on my email list about it uh, the next day or so I wrote this song. Um, and, and let me say like this is analogous to genes and DNA and asking that question you know, is there purpose here? Are we looking from a materialistic perspective or an intentional purposeful? I'm not sure I understand the DNA part of it. Tell me, tell us about the DNA. Who did somebody say 
Some, what's that in reference to? I, I just mean like it's just one example where you can bring intelligent design into your analysis or not. Or not. For instance, from a theistic perspective, consider that the first social event involving display of the shroud occurred with people who knew nothing about photographic negatives. Yeah. The reverse light image phenomenon was not a part of their world. Yeah, true. Did God confuse his children with a scientifically inexplainable and backwards image, or did God's children confuse themselves once they learned about photographic negatives and then applied an anthropomorphic perspective to the evidence? That is the question. And do you have an answer that you believe is true, or this is what you're sort of trying to well, unravel? Now we get into a study of both the Bible and the Urantia book on this subject to get some sense of what kind of purpose might be involved with all of this. So, from the Bible, John, now, you know, the word revelator is used four times in the Urantia book, and twice it appears as John the Revelator, with a capital R. You know, so I just want to say, yeah. this is not insignificant. In the Urantia community, we are dealing with the crisis of prophecy. That is, we're literally dealing with a community that identifies with a book as an epical revelation from angelic type beings. But when those very angelic type beings write about prophecies from the past and how they're going to come true and we should pay attention, your answer book readers are very slow to really want to take up those areas of study and, and take them all seriously. And I'm one of those people. I mean, before these intersecting eclipses came along, I was one of those people. And I've been learning over the last number of years that that wasn't necessarily uh, broad-minded enough. So John 19, 33 through 37 says, But when they came to Jesus, and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken, end quote. And as another scripture says, quote, they will look on the one they have pierced, end quote. That second one from Zechariah 12.10 says, Then I will pour out on the house of David and on the people of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer, and they will look upon me, the one they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, 
and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. We forget that people have been having faith and belief in Jesus for a long time before we got here. And God's been working with them, too, for a long time. And I'm suggesting we really need to think about that and think about the way the people during those times experienced all of this. And one of the things I did run across since beginning this study in the last week or so was three uh, sketches, paintings, um, artistic renderings uh, from the 1500 and 1600s. All three of these put the wound on the left side where the heart is. Now what's especially noteworthy about this is to remember that even though these people didn't know from photographic negatives, they didn't have photographic processes, so they weren't doing this dark light reversal thing, they still knew about mirror image versus true image. They weren't like unsophisticated at that most basic level that they didn't know what a mirror was and had never looked in a pond before. Right. Yeah. So I guess I'm not sure. To, yeah. I mean, to just, understand that those people lived with the experience that that image formed on the outside of the cloth. It's the only consistent relationship to the evidence. Right. Yeah. I guess so. I'm not hung up on this. I, I, I don't know. I, I understand that it's kind of an interesting uh, thing to, to evaluate. But to me, it's, it's you know, you mentioned 15th, 16th century artists depicting, you know, in, during the that period. It's not about hung up. It's about loving, honoring, and valuing that God made promises to the group through prophets. And this process was done because of the Lucifer rebellion and default, and it's evidence of God's merciful ministration through these periods where mercy delays justice, and people are having very challenging spiritual experiences because of all of that. Yeah. Do you? And so do you, this uh, is a matter I of did... honoring the prophets that gave real, true messages from on high. To the world. And the Urantia book is here validating that in all kinds of different ways. And one of the most important ones is saying that it happened on the left. By saying that it happened on the left, it's validating all of this Christian belief in the prophet. Validating Jewish belief in the prophets, if they would like to take it that way too, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, it completely honors the prophets. And this right now is important if you're thinking about like the intersecting eclipses and the way the Urantia book um, yeah. brings together John the Revelator, Isaiah, and Peter on these issues of a new heaven and new earth coming down and the restoration of divine order on earth 
to, you know, restore what was lost through the rebellion. So this is why um, it's all important and all tied together, and you can't leave any of the parts out and say, well, I'm just not interested in that part. I mean, it's fine that we all have our own interests and everything, but if you're talking in a ministerial way to another human being who's struggling with all of this, and they're not in a place, hey, I got my faith, everything's fine, I just pick and choose what I like to play in, you know? (laughs) Um, if if, If it's one of these ministerial type of conversations, that's where having a very broad and deep appreciation of this subject can be helpful in all kinds of different ways, you know? Yeah, I can appreciate that. Validating Christian belief and the Urantia book and the prophets and all of it. You know, just a glorious intersection of all these things. Sure, sure. No, and there's no doubt that 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 depiction of what happened at the time of the tomb would would bring a lot of spiritual relief to many people who are doubting God or doubting, you know, Jesus and his teachings or. Jesus and his teaching. So I can appreciate what you're trying to say, and I'd like to allow my audience to respond as well. So if there are those listening oh, okay. that would that would comment, please send me an email, yourantiabookradio at gmail.com about this discussion, because it is relevant. And I think you're right, especially during this contentious time when, when the world seems to be in complete disarray. And I also want to talk about that because you and I are are somewhat parallel in our interpretation of the two eclipses. We're going to shift now, if we could, just in the matter of time. Uh, the first eclipse that crossed over America back in 2017 occurred on August 21st. And we who read the Urantia book know that August 21st is the day that Jesus was born 7 BC. And then also there is a second eclipse, which is coming on April 8th or 9th. I keep missing it, but it's the day that Jesus was 8th. Eighth. So is it on his crucifixion day or was it on the day that he was in transit before his resurrection? When he Between the crucifixion and... Yeah. Um, well, it's not actually between the crucifixion and resurrection, because as we know, he resurrected before they had the dissolution of the body. But in human terms, yeah. his resurrection occurred on the third day. Well, that's, yeah, right, right. So we, we, yeah, we've got these <laughs> Good point. But it was the like, eight. you talking to, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. So the it eight. Was the eight. the point is, is those two dates are significant to your book readers. Uh, and then also the fact that they intersect at Bald Knob Cross, which is in southern Illinois. And let me add a few more ex- extingencies to this. Uh, the the Bald Knob Cross is what is it 111 feet or 1,011 feet? I I can never remember uh, old age. It's 111 foot. Cross. Which is interesting because it's 111, the Trinity. I mean, you can look at it a lot of different ways. Yeah. But what's also interesting is it's right next to the Shawnee. National Forest, which is also yeah. the tribe that had the prophet, which I can't say his name, you probably can, uh, who predicted that Are the West would crash. Yeah, like something that? like that. Tecumseh's brother was a prophet in the Shawnee 
Indian tribe. And in the 1850s, he was known as a prophet because he had predicted the downfall of, of the white man. So taking all this context together, if you're a Urantia book reader, you can connect all the dots and go, wow, this is pretty interesting. These two intersectional uh, eclipses that cross across, that intersected across exactly seven years later. I think you made a point that the halfway point uh, between these two eclipses actually falls on, is it December 25th? I think it was. So it, it, it's, no, it was the uh, 14th, 15th. Yeah. And so it, it's it, like, it, wow. There was a, a full solar eclipse in the southern hemisphere. Oh, there was. You're right. I forgot about that. Ordinary meteor shower oh, yeah. at that time period. Yeah, it was incredible. So was we're so my interpretation is that we're in the middle of a tribulation. Because think about everything that's happened since the first solar eclipse, tying it together. We had Trump in office, which is a complete, uh, whether you like him or don't like him, he was a, a force that disrupted uh, the status quo for good or bad, depending on your interpretation. Then we had COVID. Now we're in a war. You know, you know, Russia is threatening to blow up a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Does that constitute a nuclear war? Question for our audience. Anyway, there's all kinds of people are dying, sudden adult death syndrome. It's just, there's a lot of weirdness going on in the world. And I tend to believe that this is a time of, of, of reckoning. We're, we're being asked to decide what, what are we going to put our faith in? The state, the godless, atheistic state? Or are we going to finally recognize that, you know, we need to go to God. We need to have God in our life because that's the one element that is getting pushed out in our education, in our culture, in our media. Google, if you go to Google News, you'll notice they have no category for religion. And whenever they do have religious news, it's not about religion. It's about LGBTQ. Not that I have anything against LGBTQ. But I'm just pointing out the only thing that matters to the people who don't believe in God is how bad religion is at being intolerant, which irks me because the most tolerant people in the world tend to be more religious. Anyway... So I, I've said enough, you moved. You actually picked up your life and moved, and you were at the Bald Knob Cross at the first uh, solar eclipse, were you not? Yes, I was. How was yeah. that experience? It was awesome. We had great views of, uh, the, cross, of the eclipse at the cross. Um, it was good weather for us, and you can imagine that type of people who show up or, you know, a spectrum of people who believe in Jesus. It's, it's kind of like Close really Encounters? Nice vibe. <laughs> it's <just> wonderful. <laughs> Was it like Close Encounters where everybody shows up to watch the uh, the spaceships land and they don't know why they're going there? <laughs> Did you have that well, kind of... Well, that's what it's going to be like on April 8th on, uh, coming up in a couple of years. In 2017, it snuck up on everybody about the intersecting eclipses and how it relates to prophecy. And it was just at the beginning time period of all of that. And, uh, you know, Trump had uh, recently gotten elected. There was so much stuff going on politically and otherwise, um, you know, this didn't really get as much attention as what we're going to see with the second one. It, it's noteworthy that these things are, in order of Jesus' life, not reverse order, beginning yeah, and end. Yeah, that, that's interesting, the, isn't the it? The second eclipse is eight days after uh, the Western Easter, and it would just be like a day after the Eastern Orthodox Easter. 
And so when you think about the shroud in relationship to this celebration of resurrection, see, this is where, like, we talked about proof, right? This is, you know, between more likely than not and beyond all reasonable doubt are all these shades, all these gradations, right? You know, it's not like you just jump from, well, I guess it's about 51% more likely uh, <laughs> I to, I'm sure, beyond that, right? There could be anything, right? Life is uh, complex and diverse and varied. Well, think about the Shroud of Turin in the context of that spectrum where science can't reproduce it or figure out how it was named. So on that spectrum of more likely than not to proof from God of the fulfillment of prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus, you know, you got to ask yourself these types of questions. It's kind of funny when you think about it, when people say, where's the proof? Show me a picture. Yeah, well. (laughs) Where's the evidence? Well, you know, it's right there. Like, God gave you a picture of Jesus that fulfills prophecy that you can't explain. It's been hanging around for years. So, you know, from an intelligent design perspective and all of it, like, you know, this is where it's important to remember how different this issue is than something like leaving a relic behind. Oh, oh, he drank out of that cup. Oh, he wrote down these words. You know, this was his sandal. Yeah. Right? That's fetish stuff. Right. This is not fetish stuff. This is filled with information. Extraordinary amounts of mind-boggling, inexplicable information regarding one of the most miraculous events in a universe. And we got a picture. We got a selfie. <laughs> Jesus took a yeah. selfie before he left. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's really good. Get it through Gabriel but, and everything, you know. Like I'm sure they're coordinated <laughs> on some level. They know what they're doing. I'm gonna I'm gonna name this podcast episode "Jesus Takes a Selfie." <laughs> Jesus takes a selfie. You heard it here. That's first. great. You be the news, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that could be a book. So, but we forgot one very important thing, which is Melchizedek. Please, We're coming on his two thousandth anniversary. No, and we passed it. Oh, we passed it already. But you believe... Oh, you... I'm sorry. Melchizedek. Has that birthday right, passed? Um, we don't know the date that he arrived. 20, we we know the year. 2021. 2021 was the 4,000th oh. year anniversary. Okay. Adjusted okay, so for the Julian 20, calendar 20, and all that? Yeah. 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 2020 was the 4,000th year. And this is where some people get confused and, you know, have trouble with the math, and there isn't a zero year between B.C. and A.D., and, like, there's these different issues. So you want to remember what you're actually talking about so that you don't unnecessarily confuse your Yeah, and and just as as an insert, let me just, for those who don't know, Melchizedek, uh, in the Arantia book, 
who also appears numerous times in the Bible, was the one that that taught monotheism to Abraham, Abraham, and thus founding the Hebrew religion, which would carry the truths of Melchizedek and monotheism, and also prepared the way for the eventual birth of of Jesus. And he did so because the light of truth was vanishing from the human race. This was about the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way, uh, which is an interesting topic for maybe we could have another day. But um, yeah, because there's been new, uh, there's been new research that came out in the last year that says there might've been an asteroid shower. And that is the, where the story. Yeah. Great research. So we could that is incredible. Yeah, but the the Urantia book asserts that it, since uh, Melchizedek Machaventa is the vicegerent uh, 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 ruler of our world, spiritually speaking, uh, and acts in the place of, of Jesus, who is Michael of Nebadon, that he could make an appearance at any time, and that there is a growing uh, sort of movement. I don't know if it's in the Urantia book, but there are a lot of Urantia book readers and I've seen them on Tr- Truth Book. They're expecting that Machaventa may be the next visitation. It won't be Christ necessarily. He will come again. But are you of the of the mind that you expect Machaventa to reappear uh, or come back before Christ or simultaneously? What what is your research led you to believe, or what is your opinion? Yeah, I, I think Machaventa Melchizedek will come back as the planetary prince. I expect he'll come back with hosts that go along with establishing an administrative center. Um, I think when the Urantia book puts together prophecies from John the capital R revelatory about a new heaven and a new earth, and then goes directly to Isaiah's comments about a new heaven and a new earth and you know, new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath and all of that, it just powerfully points to Melchizedek coming back and restoring order here. And whether Jesus would come at that same moment or not, to me, is this fun, open question that is especially fun and open because there is so much to say about Melchizedek that really supports the idea of Melchizedek coming back. And so, you know, before you get to who, is that question of, well, is anybody going to show up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to me, the question is where, when. In order, right? (laughs) Yeah. To me, the question is when. Like, is it going to be 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? We don't know. But... Right, exactly. So that's the first order of question, is when is somebody going to show up? Yeah. Right? right? And the second eclipse seems like a very powerful when marker. Wow. I thought it could have been the first eclipse was a powerful when marker. I think any time in this whole period is, you know, fair game. But I've said from the beginning, I kind of thought maybe we would see Melchizedek with the first eclipse, and that if we didn't, then I figured it would be on the second eclipse rather than somewhere in between. Yeah. So I've always had a little bit hedgy kind of commentaries and and beliefs about all of this stuff. Yeah. You know, because I'm a student. 
You know what I mean? I'm trying yeah. to figure this stuff yeah. out best I can, but it's not like I have. I'm not that prophet type or seer type. In other words, I think one of the things about the Urantia book is that it put, an, and this is really important, because in the Urantia book community, as well as outside, people are going to mystic seers who are supposed to have this connection to the other world, right? Yeah. To bring us information for the group as compared to just your own personal religious life. And I think the Urantia book stands as a document designed to put an end to all that for the faithful. It's saying, hey, we're not playing that game anymore. Yeah. We got the printing press, we got big stuff coming up, and now that we've got all of this going on and the technology to handle it, we wrote you a book. So you don't have to, you know, try to interpret mystical experiences with seers, which we know is difficult. Thank you for your consideration. You're playing along, <laughs> right? But yeah. now we're off to bigger, better, right? Like this is progressive. Yeah. And there were obvious pitfalls and, and problems, you know, with preserving information pre-printing press through seers. <laughs> you know, you got yeah, the rabbis they did pick a opportune time. Yeah, like thank that. God for the printing you press. Know? You know, so you yeah. know, it's interesting. There's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look this up while while we're talking here. But uh, there's, there's a word that comes to mind, and the word is Frank. And I'm not talking about Frank, uh, like a person Frank. I'm talking about a quote from Paper 92, uh, Paragraph 4, Section 9. Uh, where it talks about the Urantia papers, and they use the term, basically, the time has arrived on Urantia when it is advisable to make such frank statements. And what they're basically saying, it's like what Halbert just said, it's time to grow up. You know, there's a lot of information that we don't have as a human race that would have been vital for us uh, to know. And, and this is why, spiritually, we're so far behind, because we can't even agree on the divinity of Christ. You know, that that's still yeah. a problem for, for most humans. I mean, you know, they're slaughtering Christians all over Africa because they because there are groups of people who hate the idea that Christ is divine or that people believe in that because they're confused. They don't they lack the knowledge that would have come from Calagastia being successful, that would have come from Adam and Eve being able to set up a successful administrative and cultural and spiritual center. We were deprived of all this knowledge that the great religious teachers tried to teach, but because of our nature, uh, because of the rebellion, all these outside influences, we're still thinking religion in terms of a five-year-old as opposed to an adult. So when they say it's advisable to make frank statements, that's an important demarcation. It's time to grow up, and it's time to make tough choices. And it's time to realize that we're not the only kid in the block. We're not the only neighborhood. You know, there's an entire cosmic family that watches us. We have thought adjusters in our heads that keep records of everything we do. And we have guardian angels that, you know, so I could go on and on and I won't. But my goodness, what a great, you know, what a great conversation, Halbert. 
This is one of my longest podcasts, an hour and 10 minutes. Okay, so I guess we should wrap up. And I, don't know, I, <laughs> I think I, we I should. Go on with you. I love speaking with you. If you want to uh, talk more on any of these political things as they intersect with the eclipses or the social commentary stuff you've been doing, um, I'd be happy to discuss it. I would. Podcast I like. absolutely would. Um, yes. And, and, and if you... Yeah, so please. I just think that it's great that you could come on with us, Albert Katzen, com. Look up all of his old works if you haven't. He's done some very scholarly stuff, and frankly, I appreciate it. I think the future, you may not get... Please, Jim, not com. Oh, what is it? Um, It it should link over to com, but sometimes, you know... Things don't switch over the way I they're see. supposed sure. to. So it's, My website is ubannotated.com. Ubannotated.com. And yeah. that'll direct you to Halbert Katzen's site. And he'll hopefully continue to update me on his progress. And I will have you back on again. I want to have you back on before the next eclipse so we can talk about it some more. And any any clothing, cl- closing thoughts about the Shroud of Turin? Uh, 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 obviously, is your paper on this complete, or are you still have you have you gone through? Well, thank you for asking. I you know I got started uh, you know with the process of, of just putting out a new idea and following up on it, and it is in process. And I do want to get around to writing up more of an article on it. I, I, I don't know when that's going to happen. Certainly the expansion I did from the initial presentation last week, and then I did a few more things this week, has provided a lot more information than was there originally. Um, but I think that you know, hopefully I'll, I'll get back to it and provide more. This is a fascinating topic. Indeed. Howard Katzen joining us on the Urantia Radio podcast. I'm Jim Watkins again. Email address if you have any comments or questions for Halbert, I'll be happy to forward it to them as well. And uh, the email address, UrantiaBookRadio at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for stopping by and God bless. Turn, turn, turn There is a season, turn